You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oneofus.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Welcome to Digital Noise! Yay! Yay! That's the cats applauding. They love it. That's John, Sir John Golson. Hello. Joining me. How, how long can you keep saying Happy Holidays before it's uh, too no. dusty and creaky and spiderweb covered? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it still technically is because it's, although it is post-Christmas, we have New Year's coming up. Mm-hmm. And that is... Like the holiday, one of the holidays I care the absolute least about, certainly, yeah. because I worked in bars for a very long time and New Year's to us was like a thing that someone who said New Year's is coming up and everyone would just visibly shudder. It's <laughs> weird. Yeah. I worked in movie theaters for like 15 years. And so like Thanksgiving and Christmas, Christmas Day, especially being like a big movie going day, it kind of, it kind of broke me from making that a habit with family. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of had to get back into the habit of like trying to center it around family instead of it just being like a day. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I grew up with Christmas being almost a Victorian affair. You know, <laughs> you were giving each other oranges. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Like every time we had the Christmas stockings, Is there was the always, ready? there was always a, a ma- mandarin or, or a tangerine at the mm-hmm. bottom at the toe of it. That was traditional. And there'd wow. be like cloved oranges around yeah. the house and stuff. And like, I mean, I grew up in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which is one of the oldest towns in America. And they, they do fucking Christmas. Like it's like candlelight tours and of all I these ancient I've houses. Been there. Fredericksburg, think- Virginia? Is that the place where there's like you can go visit like uh, there's like slave ships that you can go visit and things like that? Like not, there's sort of like not in Fredericksburg. No, there's not like historical stuff that there's, you can. I mean, it's everything is historical in Fredericksburg. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like I mean, there's like every, I always joke. There's a plaque on every house in a certain area of the town. Time that, the town that's like George Washington took a dump here once. Or something. I feel like we took a trip when I was a kid, and all we all we did were walk through like reenactments of. People, they do places do that. and things. But it may yeah. be Williamsburg you're thinking Okay. Because they do, that. that's kind of their gimmick. It's okay. like big reenactments of Maybe like, this so. is early life in America. Yeah. But Fredericksburg was like, like I said, when it turned Christmas, they just went all crazy, all out. And my family was like, I, I don't know, they came from my grandmother, my mom inherited. We had all this super antique, like hundreds of years old Christmas decoration shit. The, the house would be ridiculously decked out. Biggest Christmas tree you can find. With and some Literally, like we'd have a whole day of just putting the shit on the Christmas tree because it would take that long. <laughs> and we were always like, I want to decorate the Christmas tree. But I'm looking around now. And you're not seeing any I of that. I don't see a speck you of know, Christmas. You, you know why? Why is that? Do you notice three animals running around the house I right do. now? I do. notice them. Because <laughs> before I had these cats, I did, in fact, I mean, not to that extent. I did right. not inherit all those decorations. But I would put up a tree. I would do stuff. I'm not religious, certainly, in any sense. But for me, it symbolized family. Yeah. And, like, um, I love the whole, like, spending time to think about what you're going to give people and trying to put a lot of thought into it and watching them open your gifts. And the older you get, the less you care about the gifts you get, the more excited you are to watch the people you love can mm-hmm. open the gifts that you give them. Uh, and I still really enjoy that part. I mean, my wife is Jewish and she had never like done Christmas on any level. And for the record, 
Christmas is not terribly offensive as a replacement for like non-Orthodox Jews because Hanukkah is a very minor holiday in, in Judaism. They're like, whatever, <laughs> it's the sock holiday. Yeah, <laughs> you know, she's like, they, we we some years we barely even celebrated it. You know, uh, Christmas. She's like, well, as long as we're not you're not into the religious side of it, I'm like, which I 100 percent am not. Then she didn't really have a problem with the idea of it just being a ritualistic exchanging of gifts. Yeah, which is what we do. You know, and I got some good shit. <laughs> cool. I was actually oh, the one gift I got. I was super excited about, it, and literally almost no one else I know is going to be excited about. It, is somebody wrote this giant tome about the butthole surfers, about like oh, the wow. whole history of them and touring yeah. with them, and they've been infamously hard to get to talk about their experiences over the years. And somebody gathered every bit of info they could find and made this big book. And I was like, oh my god, I must have it. And interesting, you know, I have it. <laughs> yeah, the only thing I know about that guy is his dad was a TV. Yeah, Mister Mister Peppermint. Peppermint. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, he was really a the TV only thing I children's know show guy. entertainer. He was, um, and I know we're going way off topic of what the show is for, but he, Gibby Haynes, the yeah. singer who is the most crazy person I have ever personally met. Like he, way out. They get, they say those guys, you're like, man, that dude did too much acid. Mm-hmm. You know, you always hear that. That's that guy. You're yeah. like, wow, something broke in that guy's brain. But when he was going to school, he was like graduating top of his class he had just gotten a job at the top accounting firm you know like as like like a prodigy accountant if there is such a thing he was like a captain of the basketball team like all american kid right and then just literally one day he just decided i don't want to do this i want to fucking be in an insane punk rock band with my buddy paul on guitar and we're gonna just walk around and do the most offensive weird shit we can think of to do are they still together (laughs) You know, not really. They're always like, well, we never technically broke up. Maybe someday we'll get back together type of thing. But then does a guy like him have a day job? I honestly don't know the answer to that. (laughs) Um, I know that he he had side projects he did. And then he was also, I think he did some, like, on the production level with film to some level. Like, not really involved heavily, but was doing stuff like that, too. I have no idea. Paul has has been a has produced a sh- the main guitarist, the main songwriter, mm-hmm. has produced a shit ton of albums for other people, and has always been sort of like one of those guys that like wow, that guy had such a unique style. Nobody ever sounded like him, both in on guitar and what he was doing in the studio. Which is partially because he had no fucking clue what he was doing and no formal training on any level, and was just making it up as he went along. Yeah, <laughs> but it turned into a thing. Um, but they're all doing okay. Their drummer, King Coffee, who didn't come into the group till a little bit later, but I saw, I think it was last year or the year before, he won uh, in the Hyde Park area, Best Lawn. Nice. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> That's funny. I thought it was funny. Anyway, I'm sorry, people. We're just going on and on. Hey, if it's interesting to you, it's interesting to somebody else. Yeah, m- maybe so. Um, but we're here to talk about home release films. I'm going to start off with one of those ones. We did not actually do a theatrical, uh, highly suspect review for, honestly, there was a screening. I missed it. I did eventually see this in the theater after they, a month after it came out, the movie is Judy and I'm glad I did. I saw it with Renee Zellweger, uh, there who, by the way, is a charming and really great person to listen to in Q and A's. Like she was just giving the most thoughtful, like intelligent answers to every question that the visibly stoned and almost incapable of of formulating questions Richard Linklater was feeding her. Yeah. <laughs> like we were after, it's like, man, I love Linklater's films, but he is literally the worst interviewer I've ever seen in my <laughs> entire life. It was like watching Owen Wilson when he was, if he was like so baked he couldn't see straight, tried doing wow. an interview. He's like going, yeah, wow, okay. Like saying that a lot. And you're like, um... 
can someone else please help out Richard? <laughs> but uh, Zellweger has gotten a lot of attention for her performance in this role where she's playing the laterish period of Judy Garland's life uh, post the, the young sensation ingenue uh, Judy Garland. And here, I guess she's in her 50s, 40s, 50s. She's in her 40s. In her 40s. But it's yeah. definitely the decline period. Oh, yeah. She's, this, is a, this is a year before her death on her final right. 40s, uh, yeah. major tour. Uh, and Renee Zellweger was honestly super sheepish about it. She was like, I felt very confident about the performance I gave. I feel completely unconfident about the singing I did because Judy Garland was just had one of those voices, even in her forties, that was hard to, for anybody to, to really match. Yeah. And she's like, I'm not even really a, a born singer. It's not my main thing at all. And I, the only reason I even said yes was because we were doing it towards the end of her life when her voice was a little rougher. But like, well, maybe I can pull this off. And sure enough, you're like, okay, you're no Judy Garland in terms of singing here, but you're carrying your own. It's not an embarrassing effort or anything. It's it's All it has to be in this movie is, is it's strong enough to maintain the believability of the scenes. And Zellweger is so... She so perfectly physically inhabits the role. Mm -hmm. She does not do a vocal impersonation, but her movements and mannerisms and everything, everything about her reads as Judy Garland on screen. It's a really, really strong performance in a movie that I, to be completely honest, did not think I was going to dig when I sat down to watch it. I, I was the same way. I went into this because I hadn't heard rave reviews of anything mm. except her performance. Heard a lot of meh about the movie. But at the end, I was like, I honestly don't understand what people didn't like about this film. I found it very engaging and quite moving. I mean, above and beyond her tremendous performance. Unrelated, because it's not in the stack, but I watched this in Honey Boy the same night. And it was <sighs> interesting to see how adults manipulating childhood celebrity had an effect on the things that the, the the sort of stunted adulthood that these celebrities would face in their later years. They definitely Not to compare are... Judy Garland to Shia LaBeouf, right. but it did make an interesting double feature that night. Absolutely. I mean, they are, in fact, this is one of this film's big focuses is how like she got as messed up as she did because of the way this Louis Mayer and the studio system was just manipulating yeah. and form forming her into the person they wanted her to be, which included force feeding her diet pills and stuff, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and she was pretty, you know, she she was a sad, she's a tragic but likable figure yeah. at this period of her life where she's making all the wrong decisions, but you can't help but really feel for her and want her to be okay. There's no one in, there's very few that are looking out for Judy Garland, the individual. It's the sort of Judy Garland, the entertainment machine mm-hmm. and people who are there to profit off of Judy Garland, the entertainment machine. And that's that system sort of just chews her up and, and burns her out. And it's like, um, you know, you kind of, I think the tragedy comes in the feeling that if somebody would have just been like stepped in and gone, no, you know what? You're going to take a couple years off. You're just going to stay home. You're just going to do this. Yeah. It's okay for you to be out of the spotlight for a while. Like if there was any thought to that, um, it would have been a completely different situation. And it's, it's an interesting movie in that the people who are sort of propping her up and forcing her on stage are not 
villains in the film. No. They don't come across... I mean, the people when we do flashbacks of her childhood are. Yeah, they, they definitely are. But I mean, the people in the moment who it's like they've got money on the line and a you know, sold-out crowd and they literally have to coax her out of the bathroom and get her up onto the stage so that she can perform... You know, it would have been a more simplistic movie might have painted them as like greedy villains as opposed to people who you have these people who they don't know her. They don't know the extent of her problems, which is the truth of the situation. All they know is, well, you, we know that you like to perform, so let's just get you out there to perform and maybe that. And then once they're out there, they see that person light up because they're a consummate professional in that yeah. situation. And so it becomes a case of like, Okay, cool. If we can just keep doing that, then then we can, you know, we can get her on our feet and get her quote unquote feeling better. When in reality, it's not helping at all. This, I thought this was going to be a more traditional biopic. Yeah, and it's not. Um, it's and more it wasn't. Those... You know what it reminded me of the um, the Laurel and Hardy movie from yeah, last year totally. or year before, where it although was like... I I liked this better than that. Yeah, but but I mean, and that's not a bad movie. Yeah. but it's that same sort of like. Bittersweet, mm -hmm. and, um, and you're seeing it at a, a very specific window of time. Yeah, um, and it's both both of them are about a final tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and and to be clear, she was so unreliable at this point of her life that she couldn't even. No one would gig her in America anymore. Yeah. She had to go to England, which she did not want to go go to because it would separate her from her children. Um, and but she had really had run out of choices if she was going to keep paying the bill. She had nowhere to live. Was like mm -hmm. like going from hotel to hotel, who were only letting her stay there because it was an honor to have Judy Garland stay there, and yeah. eventually that goodwill would run out wherever she went. So she's like, okay, well, people will book me in England, and she does indeed love the still is like the celebrity is part of like her lifeblood, what she loves, but the alcohol and drugs are just regularly in the way. The bad decision making. Well, Finn Whitrock plays like a, a a younger lover of hers who is. Definitely not the best person in the world for her, no. but he's also not played up as a straight-up villain either. He's just kind of gets sick of her shit like everybody else does after a certain period of time. And I think, too, you just, you you know, that she was young enough where I'm sure that there was some, still some thoughts that, that well, there's no way she's going, she's going to die, you know. It, there, she was, she looked older, and in the film she looks older, because in real life she looked older than her age, Um yeah, but you know, I think about her. She's just a couple years older than me when she passed. I know, just like so literally crazy. a couple. And it's like in my mind's eye, I thought she'd passed when she was like sixty or something. Even right. judging from pictures or or footage of performances at her with her at that age, I didn't realize she was like that. Some of those like later years, quote unquote, were literally like her late thirties, early forties. Yeah, um, I mean, because she started so young. Yeah, you know, I mean, even pre Wizard of Oz. But uh, I would the one thing I want to call before we finish talking about the film itself yeah. is that there's this lovely sequence uh, that that comes in and out of the film, but like kind of like culminates in one scene that I thought was one of the best scenes in the movie. That's one of the few things that's completely made up, where she has this friendship she forms with these two older gay men, mm -hmm. and it's the film's like nod to the fact that she obviously became like a gay icon, um, and it's really charming. And there's a sequence where she's. And like literally goes to their house with them to have dinner in the middle of the night. And the guy just breaks down and starts crying because he just can't believe this is happening. It actually made me misty eyed yeah. watching it. I was like, there's that side of her that was like, no question, just loved her fans. Like mm -hmm. absolutely. And was a, uh, in a time that nobody did this was a huge and outspoken supporter of, of homose homosexuals and her yeah. fan base was asked repeatedly about it. She's like, and they're my fans. I love them. 
Yeah. You know, I don't really want to hear your bullshit. <laughs> it's kind of weird to think of a movie that's that is sort of positioned as a prestige picture because they definitely want her in the Oscar race discussion and she deserves to be. <laughs> yeah. But it's weird to call a movie like that underrated. But I do think uh, Judy was kind of underappreciated and underrated as oh, it went into awards season. It, it's 100% pretty, agree. pretty strong. Yeah, I'm seeing it except for her on very few best of the year lists. And it really is a film that is worthy of consideration with a lot of the other best of the year films. Mm -hmm. uh, the Blu-ray, unfortunately, doesn't really have a lot to it. Um, there's a four-minute EPK called From the Heart, the Making of Judy, an image gallery, and that's it. And like I said, after seeing that really wonderful interview uh, with her live, I was like, God damn, it would have been so great to have that on here, or at least another interview like that here, because she's just a fascinating interviewee. Yeah, I went on a YouTube uh, rabbit hole and was watching stuff from that last year, like stuff around this time period and stuff within that last year, just because I was curious uh, mostly that rabbit hole started because there's a scene in the film where she collapses on stage during a performance. And I'd wondered if there were, was footage of that actual happening. Um, and then kind of from there went down a rabbit hole of old interviews and things like that. Yeah. So. She's, she's, if you get a chance and there's a movie you like by her, watch the, watch the interviews. She's a great person to listen to talk about it. And she puts a lot of work into it as a craft and never comes across as pretentious about it either. She's still got that whole Texas, Texas uh, next-door-neighbor girl thing going on, which is nice. All right, next up, we're going back to an old classic and what is, at least until the next one, the ultimate version of RoboCop. From ah, RoboCop. Yeah. Uh, which, okay. Go ahead. Go no, ahead, no, go no, ahead. no, no, no. Go you got this look on your face like a kid just opening his, his Christmas presents. No, no. So I, I did the, I, I did like the real, uh, like I'm a real AV nerd, and I was like popping scenes in back and forth, back and comparing. forth, comparing, <laughs> comparing the six dollar no frills RoboCop Blu-ray that you can buy anywhere, yeah. with this new special edition. But I'll let you continue, and then we'll get into my takeaways in regards to uh, the video comparison. Well, this was restored initially by MGM in 2013. It, it, this version is presented in its original aspect radio, 185.1, that has 5.1, 4.0, and stereo 2.0 audio as options. Uh, the original camera negative was, uh, was scanned in 4K. Uh, everything, including grading restoration, was completed in 4K and was all proved directly by, by Paul Verhoeven, uh, the director, as well as the executive producer and co-producer. Uh, all tracks were also remastered from the original sound elements as well. So, uh, quite frankly, I would say this is, in fact, uh, I mean, it is the best version out there, but is the actual visual or audio better? It is been tweaked to where it's a little bit brighter. So, what I noticed was, in, in popping, I was, po I was literally popping the two discs in and out and comparing scenes. It's going to come down to how much uh, if you're if you're if you're just buying it for picture, which I don't know why you would because this has so many features. You're getting so much more than just picture because the other oh, yeah. RoboCop doesn't have features. No, and so you're literally getting documentaries about every possible subject you could think of within the movie. It's exhausting. You're also getting every single cut of the movie. Yeah, so you're getting that TV cut. You're getting the theatrical cut. You're getting the extended uh, quote unquote unrated cut that's been floating around for a while. Right. Just picture to picture, though, uh, the difference in picture is negligible unless you, unless you are a big fan of film grain. Or I was a big fan, unless you're a purist about film grain. Mm. The previous release has noticeable uh, digital noise reduction, and this version has much more natural film grain mm -hmm. colors. 
uh, blacks, contrast, things like that, I found to be close to identical other than that very natural film grain look versus that sort of like flattened, smooth DNR look. Um, and certain scenes were worse than others on the DNR. Um, one scene in particular where um, there's like RoboCop is hooked up to a, sort of a looks like a lie detector machine where there's like a paper readout that's sort of like monitoring and there are these two uh, scientists that are supposed to be watching them and they're shooting the shit and eating Dunkin' Donuts and stuff like that mm -hmm. as, this, as this paper readout comes in. And on the version, on this new version, it's Arrow, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. On the Arrow version, the paper, you could very clearly see the lines in the paper. And in the DNR version, it had all but sort of smooshed those lines into, you know, through the digital noise reduction. Right. But other than that, I thought the picture of the old one, it was not a, um, it was not like a huge uptick where I was like, oh, this is so much better looking than right. the original. It was just a more natural-looking version of the original. But the real reason to get this, though, is all, all the other shit. There's well, so much I will in say here. There's a lot more sound options here. Oh, yeah. uh, the sound, if you have a really great sound system, this is definitely the version to get on it. That I didn't classic. compare. I mean, the previous ones were good. Yeah. Um, uh, MGM uh, had the Master Audio 5.1 track, but it was its only English op option. This has DTS HD Master Audio tracks in 2.0, 4.0, and 5.1. So you have more options available here. Um, but yeah, for the bonus features, and I, I don't think anyone really needs to talk, to hear a review from us for the movie itself, it's fucking RoboCop, dude. It's a, it's a <laughs> solid sci-fi, almost action comedy. I mean, it's RoboCop so is so perfect a movie because we've seen from the sequels that any shift in tone, if you go too comedic, it messes it up. If you go too much like a superhero or a cartoon, it messes it up. Yeah. There's something so particular and specific to Robocop's balance. Yeah, they just got that it you can't down. you can't mess with it. I don't I, every time I rewatch this movie, and I do once every couple of years, yeah. of course, because it's a classic, I'm always like, How is this film still so good? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it really is. And this is one of those that like I think most people tend to agree on this one being like, Yeah, this is kind of an unassailable classic and weird that a film called Robocop with the plot that it is <laughs> is as good as as it is, but man, Verhoeven had that run where you're just like, dude, you're just kicking ass. Um, I didn't watch all the special features. I kind of dipped so here many. and there. I think the one that amused me the most, um, or that had the the one that I appreciated the most, was probably the TV comparison where it would show the scene side by side. Um, for instance, the co-ed locker room uh, at the beginning of RoboCop. Everybody remembers as having like, you know, they're changing clothes in there. The men and women are changing clothes in there. And the TV cut, it's interesting because it's exactly the same, which just proves that that nudity is gratuitous because yeah. it's exactly the same. They're still in the room and they're still changing clothes, but there's just no nudity. And I'm like, oh, that's literally in the movie so that it's R-rated. Like, it's, no, <laughs> yeah. there's no reason. No, but, absolutely uh, true. But I, anyways. There is new stuff here. There's uh, the archival commentary by Paul Verhoeven, yep. producer and co-writer, but there's also new commentary by film historian Paul M. Salmon, a new commentary by a group of fans who I guess are very knowledgeable about RoboCop, sure. There's The Future of Law Enforcement, which is a new interview with the co-writer. Uh, RoboTalk, a new conversation between co-writers uh, Ed Newmeyer and filmmakers David Burke and Nicholas McCarthy. There is a new interview, which I really enjoyed, with Nancy Allen talking about the film, who is just charming and funny mm. as hell. Uh, about 18 minutes long called Truth of Character. There's a new interview with the casting director, which also was surprisingly really interesting. 
Uh, a new interview with the second unit director, Mark Goldblatt, who had worked with Paul Verhoeven on multiple films throughout his career. There's a new featurette called Analog, uh, with talking about pre-CGI old school special visual effects. Uh, there's a new piece called More Man the Machine Composing Ro uh, Robocop, which obviously talks uh, talks about composer Basil Paladoris. Um, Roboprops, a new tour of this guy who has this crazy amount of Robocop toys and paraphernalia and, and, and stuff from the movies that you're like, wow, I, I don't know if I would want all that, but it's kind of cool <laughs> to look at your collection. And there's a lot of archival stuff from other previous things, like pretty much anything that's been out on any other version of this, of which there's yeah. been many. I used to own the – was it a – there was a Criterion, wasn't there? I think there was a Criterion Robocop back was in there? the early days of DVD. There might be. And I had that, and this is this even has more – I mean, not just – this has like – Four times the amount of materials as that Criterion Robocop. Arrow, I always say Arrow is always kind of the, I always say they're like the low rank Criterion. They're the guys who yeah. are like, we're not saying this is one of the greatest films of all time, but man, we sure do love it. And they treat their films with the same amount of care and dignity uh, and respect that Criterion does with and these. They go niche most of the time, and this is one of their first, like, to me, must have releases. Like, mm -hmm. they do a lot of niche titles and a lot of stuff that's like cult stuff, but this to me is like, it's just, it's almost a shame that they don't have deeper distribution where, you know, this should be the kind of thing, this would be the kind of thing that for them would be a breakthrough release if they had it on the shelves of Walmart and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Because it is such a popular movie, and this being sort of a definitive version of that popular movie. I kind of wish Arrow had had deeper penetration, but you can order it directly from the site if you if you <laughs> yes, go to you our can. webpage. Yes, you can, uh, and, and when I highly recommend you do so because it is a it is the version of RoboCop to own. There is also physical stuff in here that's pretty cool. It's an, it's a great package, cool slip box, reversible sleeve, six collector postcards, a double sided fold out poster, and an eighty page booklet with essays, stills, and transfer information. So this is like a all out, no question. Probably the best version of RoboCop we're going to get yeah. for any time soon. So if you're yeah. a fan and you want the best version, this is it and probably will be for some time. Well, let's move on to another one that was a unexpected little pleasure called The Fair. Yeah. Did not expect this to be a movie that I was going to go like, wow, this was a... Uh... This was really fun and kind of a keeper because first off, and this is nothing against the really kind and cool people at um, the production company of this. Uh, the, 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 now, why am I forgetting the name of it? Um, oh, look right here. Uh, is it Epic? Uh, Epic Releasing? Dread. That's Dread and Epic Releasing. Yes. Who put out a lot of stuff by smaller uh, creators, filmmakers, and it's, you know... I find that generally, like, none of them are, very rarely is one just flat out unwatchable, but usually they're like, okay, well, I saw that, and then I can't remember I saw it again. You know, this is one where I'm like, wow, if I saw this at a film festival, I would have been telling all my friends about it, and like going, telling, you know, if I worked in the production industry, it'd be like, this guy, especially the writer, mm -hmm. that guy deserves, like, to be given a closer look and and, uh, and have more opportunities, because this is just an, a simple but neat little sort of Twilight Zone episode of a movie. About that writer, that guy is the lead female actress in the movie. Oh, sorry. That's the, okay. Yeah. Uh, which was I thought was awesome when I found that out. Uh, I, Bre I, Brenna Kelly. Yeah, I went on a little uh, I went on a little um, journey <laughs> to find out more about this movie. And I actually, you know, it's really rare, but having been an actor who's been in these like no budget genre movies before, I was like you kind of put it out there in the world and you don't know if anybody even saw it. And yeah. for something that to me was this high quality, I actually went out of my way and messaged both her and the director on Instagram. Oh, nice. And just said, hey, I don't expect you to message me back. 
I just wanted to say I saw the fair and I thought it was really good. Just so that they knew that, like, hey, oh, hey, people our are, movie people are actually seeing it. Yeah, and, because and it is, they should. Yeah, because it is small. It's a very DIY movie. And, it, and it, we've talked before about these low-budget movies doing the best with what they have. And in this case, you essentially have a, a male lead and a female lead. And this guy's a cab driver, and he's on this stretch of road. And he's caught in a time loop, and he keeps picking up the same fare over and over and over. And as the movie progresses, you begin to learn more about uh, what's actually happening in this situation. Now, a movie like this um, could fall into the trap of being visually boring because they're both in a cab. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also it also relies on those two actors to carry that material pretty much through the whole running time. And we've talked about this before that there's certain things that don't cost any money for a genre film actors and words and this is a case of oh cool finally we've seen one where somebody has got good actors and good words and it's like you don't have to sweat the special effects or any big action sequences or anything Mm -hmm. like that it has a solid story it has leads that you care about it's interesting all the way through and yeah for for something again we've seen a there's there's two of these almost every episode of Digital Noise that I do where it is like a DIY production. Yeah. And it's cool. And, you know, we've talked before about not wanting to beat up on them, but it's sort of like when one comes along and is actually rock solid, it's sort of like... Yay! You really want to champion it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's You feel you feel like you've... Uh, yeah, you want to step up and you want to root for the underdog and you want to let people know about this movie. So, oh, I, I completely yeah. agree. I think this was a lot of fun. It's it's kind of a grabber right off, partially because the guy playing the cab driver right off the bat is very engaging. You like him. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, there's like three characters in this whole movie, one of which is a disembodied voice over the CB radio. And I love the way that... Although it definitely has that sort of like a Twilight Zone episode sort of feel, mm. it's something that more skews towards something like San Junipero's like sense of sort of like romantic sweetness. Yeah, and it, it does, twists, have, a, does you know? have a very strong romantic thread through it. it yeah, yeah, I just I found it thoroughly charming, and at the end, I was like, "Man, I'm really glad I, f- I saw that movie." Mm-hmm. It's, it's I yeah, I highly recommend it. And a lot of these little releases tend to not have a lot of bonus features, but this has a pair of audio commentaries on it, a five minute extended scene, a two minute montage of unused footage, a, a two-minute different original opening, a uh, one-minute uh, bit of just the conspiracy talk radio that you hear going on in the film at points when he's listening to the radio. There's a three-minute gag reel and a three-minute breakdown of a flashback scene with storyboards, most of them with an introduction or voiceover input from the director. There's two featurettes, a nine-minute interview with the director and cinematographer Josh Harrison, uh, and uh, uh and then there is a bit with a star and screenwriter Brenna K- Kelly for 15 minutes talks about some of the, the mythological themes of the film that are involved, uh, which, by the way, just that moment when there's a reveal of that, I was like, giddy. I was like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It yeah. is. I think we both highly recommend this. And a different week, this might have been our pick of the week. I think I even messaged you, didn't you I? You did. Like partway through it and was like, hey, this is actually good. Because the cover is so lame. And I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah, it's not Don't judge good. a movie by its cover. It's, right. It's got the sort of like oh we like edgy retro grindhouse uh where it's it looks worn it's supposed to look like an old vhs tape or something yeah and it has the two leads in a very ominous looking taxi cab and it says the fair and the picture on the back is like it's not a great photograph on the back you can barely tell what it is so the the packaging on this is not the best but don't this is a particular movie don't don't judge a movie by its cover this is actually 
actually pretty strong. I completely agree. Uh, our next one also is one of those films. It was a, a little film that got a lot of notice after playing some film festivals uh, at, at TIFF. Uh, it got a, a very strong reaction. This movie's called Freaks. It is not a remake of the classic Todd Browning movie, Freaks. Uh, it is a completely different thing. And the problem with this film, which just came out like towards the end of last year, is that it has a it is a delightful building of information to find out what's actually happening. And it's hard to talk about it without trying to stay away from spoiling the, the pleasure of discovery as it goes along as you realize... Oh, this is what's at what is the event you're seeing. This is the context in which that they are are happening, and it's kind of that joy discovery. It's something that starts off as a film that feels like a, a a bottle horror film, and you realize, no wait, maybe it's more of a science fiction film, and then you realize it's more of a can't say. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I did really enjoy watching this. I don't think it's. I had a lot of people at Fantastic Fest this year actually saying, "Man, when this when you get a chance, watch Freaks. It's really good." I did not play Fantastic Fest, but um, I do think it's one of those movies that like I would recommend to to almost anybody who's a big fan of genre filmmaking, as it's fast moving. It's got a, the apparently disgraced Emil Hirsch, yeah. <laughs> who went from a like looks like he's going to be an A list actor to only appearing with like little stuff like this. Hey. I think didn't he beat somebody up at Sundance? I, it was something in front of people. It was like, something crazy yeah. like that. But uh, it's but he's not even the main character. It's this little girl uh, who is in the house with her dad, Emil Hirsch. The house is a wreck. I mean, it's like just and you're like, is this an apocalypse thing? All the windows are taped up. But when she looks out the window, it's all sunny. There's like an ice cream truck outside, and she's like, oh, I want someone to get some ice cream. She sees other people. He's like, no, you can't talk to anyone at all. We cannot talk to anyone. If they do, they're going to kill us. And you're like, so is this a film about a crazy dad? And that, outside of saying that Bruce Dern appears as the ice cream man and is a much bigger part of the story after he appears, uh, who is also really good, is about as much as I want to dig into the giving away plot details. Yeah. But I did find it really, like, one of those movies at the end, I was like, I don't think it's quite as good as everybody's saying it is, yeah. but I could totally understand anybody going, oh, I'm totally in love with that film. I Yeah, I get that. I think, it, I think seeing it cold... Um, and coming out of nowhere and being like, what is this, uh, is different than going, oh, here's this, uh, genre movie that I've heard of called Freaks that I've heard is really good. And then sitting down to watch it. I think there's a lot of the movies that were with itself, I think, uh, between how much I, I don't, and I don't think it ever finds its balance between world building and explaining the world and family dynamics. Um, it, it one or the other, I think, would have paid off better. And I think it kind of, it's kind of a mishmash, I think, of both, where mm -hmm. I don't feel, I don't find myself strongly invested in the fam family dynamics. And I also don't find myself strongly invested in sort of the world building, although it's never not interesting. Um, it just doesn't, it just doesn't push hard enough in any, either direction. The movie that this most reminded me of from sort of a recommended if you like standpoint without me going into spoilers is probably fast color. 
Yeah. Um, Which I do I, think is the better of the I, two. Yeah, I, I liked Fast Color more than this. I think if you liked Fast Color, then this is probably worth a look. I mean, uh, this is definitely more pulpy yeah. uh, and, and faster moving than Fast Color, which is definitely more of an art film. Mm-hmm. Um, this I would not call an art film. No, it's, uh, no. But it's very competently made. I think my biggest disappointment here, if anything, is just that when the when you're finally in possession of all the facts and you understand the context of everything that's happening, I was like, well, this is actually like a re- relatively familiar storyline here it's the build towards it's the 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 slow reveals and the you sort of figuring out what all these things mean that are interesting it's the way that's done that are really interesting more so than what actually the final thing is where you're like okay there's literally tons of entertainment with this story yeah and that's the thing too is i i don't want to armchair quarterback it but i kind of wish it was a tv series yeah it does feel. i think if it were six episodes of a show it, it would find that balance that i want that the movie just doesn't have oh I was going to say as well, um, at first she's not in it that much, but is more and more Amanda Crew, who is having an interesting career with being in a lot of indies of late. Not all of which I've liked, but I always liked her, uh, who is, uh, I guess, best known for playing Monica Hall in Silicon Valley. But she's really good here. And the stuff that has to do with, of the mystery of the connection between her and uh, her daughter, who is the main character, is really cool the way they do it. I was like, this is a neat gimmick, and the way they, with very little money, choose to to show it and yeah. and, and like make it where you understand what's happening. It's a it's a cool way of doing it. I was very impressed. <laughs> There's a lot of money saving stuff like that in here that they put a lot of thought into how they were going to do it, and not make it like everybody had always always done this before. That I was very impressed with. But like I said, I think this is a, a your results may vary, but it's definitely well worth seeing. Um, there's a behind the scenes for 15 and a half minutes, uh, and then a director's commentary as well, but that's about it. But yeah, I I definitely would call this a, like, if you like sci-fi, horror, genre stuff, uh, but stuff, I would say arguably a little bit on the lighter side of it. Yeah. You know, it's not like, this isn't like a wildly gory movie or anything like that, although it has its moments. Um, then by all means, check this out. I think it's fun and you will enjoy it. Uh, a movie I thought for sure was going to be a genre film and then wasn't at all was The Demons. <laughs> the Demons. I was like, wait, oh, The Demons, and it's got a super creepy cover of this little kid who looks possessed, and you're like, okay. And guess what? That is 100% misleading. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this Canadian drama film uh, directed, written and directed by uh, Philippe Lesage came out in 2015 based in part on his own childhood. Uh, it follows Felix, a 10-year-old boy who's living with his family in a suburb of Montreal who is kind of neurotic. Uh, <laughs> has a lot of excessive worry is how Wikipedia puts it. Uh, there's a series of child abductions that the town is worried about, but he sort of starts over obsessing about it to some degree. Now that sounds like a horror movie, right? It's not, it's a coming of age film that not a lot actually happens in. (laughs) That's my take. I don't know. I would like to hear what you have to say. I did not care for this movie. Um, It has very art house, almost uh, Michael Haneke type vibes. Yeah. Um, Lots of like the, the boy is struggling with his own queerness um, and that sort of I, it ties in might be too strong of a word. It, it cert, there's certainly there are certainly events that happen in the latter half of the movie that um, are 
uh, more disturbing. Or, yeah, or certainly, yeah, or more troubling. But everything has that sort of detached Michael Haneke thing of like feeling very removed and voyeuristic. And there are lots of shots of just like, okay, the camera is going to be placed here around this corner behind this bush. And you're going to watch these people play outside. I mean, maybe that's and it. And that shot lasts for like two and a half minutes. And I, it's like, okay. I've just never been a Michael Haneke yeah. fan. I don't, I mean, I've seen enough of his films to know, I, much like Terrence Malick. I'm yeah. like, you just don't connect with me, dude. I don't really like the way you do things. I can admire your technique yeah. and your, your talent, but it doesn't connect with me. And this movie, I felt that way. I was like, there's nothing wrong, going wrong here other than I just found it impenetrable. Yeah, I agree. It's not, it's not bad in a traditional sense of like being poorly acted or poorly made or anything like that, but it is very detached. And when you're telling a story that is about like something as relatable to some people as a struggle with queerness, um, it's weird to have it be, to have everything kind of feel at arm's length. Some people may really respond to this though, more than, more than you and I. Some people did. Um, it was in the festival circuit. It it was nominated for a whole ton of awards at various different festivals that it played at, and it was uh, listed by TIFF as one of Canada's top ten films of the year. Wow! Yeah, it's very very slow moving. It's also French Canadian, so it's in French. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of reward for so much investment, and and it does require you to invest. Uh, weirdly, the same director writer made a spin-off film of this. What called Genesis, which I didn't. They also sent and also just came out where the character who plays Felix reprises that role in that movie, but he just he's a supporting character in that okay. movie. He plays a minor All character, right. but just enough to say this is the same world the, as that. The movie. demon cinematic universe. I guess. <laughs> did, did you know this is unrelated? But I think the last time I was on, we reviewed a movie called The Souvenir. Uh-huh. That was uh, written and directed by Tilda Swinton's daughter. Right. Did you know The Souvenir 2 is coming in 2020? I did. It says at the end. <laughs> at the end, it's like, this character will return in The Souvenir 2. And I was like, is that a joke? It's not a joke. A lot of people put that movie on the best of their year list and I'm like I don't what movie did you watch because it wasn't I don't think it was the same one I watched which I was prying my eyelids open to get through yeah I I just I'm not always on the same page as every other critic and that was one I was like when our friend Richard Whitaker said it's one of his favorites I'm like what planet are you from? <laughs> well, who's on the same page as Richard Whitaker? That's so. fair. Well, I mean, one of the most lovable, like, huggable guys I'd know, for sure. I always go, man, you are one of the best writers about film I know that I also disagree with at least I would strangle him if he wasn't so nice. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> and then when I'm, like, around him, I'm just like, I really like him. And <laughs> I don't know if Richard's listening, but he's so, uh, he's, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And I think from an online standpoint, he often pops in just to disagree or just oh, to yeah. say you're wrong. And yeah. that drives me batty. So I'm glad he's a sweet, sweet man. He is. He's one of those people, if you looked at him purely from his internet presence, you'd think he was probably an asshole. Yeah. But he's not. No. He just, he, he's like one of those takes joy in throwing kerosene on the, the yes. internet fires. Anyways, behind the scenes. Uh, so, so, yeah, a little peek behind the scenes. And one of our favorite people who also drives us a little crazy sometimes. Uh, so next up, we have the Criterion film for this week. And this was actually one of my favorite movies of uh, 2018 when it came out. It was my top pick for Best Foreign Language film which is cold war mm-hmm. um it's a movie that n- does not feel like the kind of movie i would normally go 
batshit crazy for, but I remember seeing in the theater and just being just completely swept away by it. Just, I just found it so beautiful and it's shot in, what is it? Four, three. Yeah. Which is odd as well for a film as gorgeous as this and is. black and white and black and white. But that like, you're just, it's just amazing looking film. And is, would you call it a musical? No, but it's about music for sure. And there's a lot of musical numbers. M- music is part of this film's blood, like vital is existence, but it's not a musical. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would always say a musical to some extent involves a certain degree of heightened reality, and I don't think that's what's happening here. There's no storytelling. Well, even that, I when I start to say it out loud, I'm like, there's at least two moments where I think the storytelling is done through the music. Okay. I think her introduction is one, and I think the scene in the bar is another where the storytelling is done through the music. I mean, I feel like it's not so much the words that are being said are telling you the story, so much as the fact they're singing that song and what that song is at that particular time tells you a lot about what's going on in that person at that point of their life. Uh, It's post-World War II uh, Poland. Uh, This group is doing auditions for a state-sponsored folk music ensemble. So they're going to little villages and trying to find auditioning people who are like are come from the folky background of the history of, of sort of Polish music. Um, not certainly not in any sort of populist way, but we were looking for people. We want to see people who are talented in various forms of dancing and singing and what have you, but are do it with the traditional music. And they want to bring this as part of a, a bigger thing to tour around the country, to tour around Russia as well, to be sort of representative of like, oh, this is our country's history. Uh, he is completely immediately captured by a woman named Zula, played by the striking Joanna Kulig, who mm-hmm. I was right off the bat like, this person needs to be a much bigger star <laughs> than they are. Just has that je ne sais quoi of like, there's just something about her that just sparkles with life. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that's what this actor sees. And she, um, they fall into, the attraction is obvious. It starts, they, they build on that rather quickly. And then the film starts going into a series of chapters as they're regularly separated and then refined each other o- over time. Uh, and that ends really depressingly. <laughs> it's like it, these characters' agency is not taken away from them, but they make a very dark decision towards the end of this film that in some ways is treated. Some have argued that it's only metaphorically that's what's happening. Others said literally. I think it's literal. I took it as literal. I did too. Um, but I do find this film just beautiful. The s- soundtrack is amazing. Uh, the cinematography is amazing. The performances are amazing. I just, I was really swept away by this thing. What a strange release for Criterion, though. You think? I did, I did find this, yeah, because I'm like, it just came out, but and they, it's an Amazon film. and But I don't think they ever put out a Blu-ray release of this. Okay. I, I don't think there was a good release of this film you could get for a home release, because I remember looking and going, well, that's weird that they're just not going to put this out. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was a big deal when it came out last year, at least among people who care about foreign language films. Yeah. I think it was on a lot of people's like top of their uh, best foreign language film. Which didn't they just change the name of that now? Isn't it like best international film or something? I did they? I, I honestly I so. don't know. I I didn't watch this last year. I remember when the screener came in, retroactively remembered because then it was like, oh yeah, it came in with the Amazon stuff uh, when the Amazon logo hit. But uh, yeah, I, I don't have much more to add. It's really uh, it's really well photographed. Um, yeah, it's sort of uh, doesn't quite 
succumb to the cliches of a, of a war-torn romance. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's probably like, if, if those are the kind of, if you've liked those kind of movies in the past, it sort of is sort of one of those, but isn't, doesn't play to all the cliches of one of those. Yeah. Um, and it's, yeah, just really nice looking. And I, and I, and I appreciated, I actually, I really liked how musical it was. Um, I liked all the music and I did kind of, when I finished it, start to try to think about how I define what a musical is for myself. Um, so it made me think more about, uh, films, uh, which is always, you know, not every movie makes you think more about your own relationship with movies, Mm -hmm. but this one in particular challenged my thoughts on what I consider a musical. Mm. So I think I, and I I think at the end of the day, what I came around to is that I I think I would consider it a musical. I could probably be talked out of it pretty easily, but I think it does come down to like just a matter of there's a couple moments in the movie that the songs are removed and the scenes are broken. Like Mm -hmm. the scenes are busted and they're not the same. Well, it's just so So, about music. I mean, he's literally a, a, a a piano player, multiple instrument, instrument, uh, instrumentation person. And she is the singer who does many different types of singing over the length of the film. And music is the thing that keeps bringing them back together and also that tears them apart. I mean, every scene of this film in some degree, music is the third character. (laughs) <laughs> you know, even mm-hmm. while it doesn't feel like the traditional way you think of a musical as the, like I said, the heightened reality that is more common with, common with musicals where like, oh, well, they're not actually singing. Like, this is just the characters talking to each other. But here, so you don't get that here. Right. But I don't know if that's the dividing line. I guess it depends on how you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is Criterion. So there is a illustrated leaflet with an essay by a film critic as well as technical credits. There is a Full press conference for this at the Cannes Film Festival, which I actually found very interesting. Um, although the sound is a little like at points you have to turn it up pretty high because some people are very not just not talking right into the mic, and it was driving me crazy. I was like, Jesus Christ, people, you're all performers, talk into the fucking microphone. <laughs> but it's uh, the director, Powell Palakowski, joined by the primary actors in the film. There's a Behind the scenes of Cold War, which is about 16 minutes long, which is everyone talking about sort of like the, the conception of it, uh, how sound was deeply related and the things they did with that, visual style, what have you. There's the making of Cold War for 14 minutes, a lot of short interviews. There is a film conversation between the director and, uh, and this was really interesting, between the director and Alejandro Inarruto, who's a very big director uh, on his own, yeah. who's sort of fanboying out on, oh my God, I love this movie so much. <laughs> and just asking him all the questions you would want to ask. That's cool. Which is becoming a more common thing that I've seen on Criterion's lately, like getting another big director who's a fan of whatever director to be the one doing the interview. And I, I really like it when they do that. Uh, but yeah, this is a, another uh, solid release and definitely another candidate for our uh, pick of the week, which we still have not uh, announced what it is, but we'll keep going. With official secrets. It's hard this week. It and, is. There's a lot of I mean, choices. I, I, well, we got some more. We'll get to the yeah, end. We'll get just, to the, just, we'll just remind me. Because I think there's one... I, I think there's a must-have, but but you, <laughs> but you own it already. Like, the must-have, to me, is RoboCop. Right. 
and but I'm willing but to bet be... that like ninety percent of the listeners have it. Now it's still this this release is a must have. Yeah. But it feels weird to be like Robocop is the pick of the week when there's other stuff in here that deserves the pick of the week. I know. In a way it's a hard call yeah. this week. Yeah. We may we'll have get to, to the end. We may I'll think about it the whole time. The, flip a coin or something, you know, or roll dice. Uh, so, Official Secrets is a film that was much better, bigger in Britain than it was here. Weirdly, they didn't even send out screeners for Oscar consideration. It certainly was getting BAFTA consideration in yeah. England. Um, a big release there. Very tiny release. Barely made it into theaters here. It's fucking Gavin Hood, too, who has done a lot of films, both good and not so good. <laughs> for every Ender's <laughs> Game, he's got an X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yes. But he is a name. And uh, Keira Knightley, who is an A-list, true, honest-to-God Hollywood movie star, if you will. And it's a true story of this employee at the government communications headquarters, which is the intelligence and security operation in England that basically analyzes um, uh, uh, signals intelligence, like any like recordings, phone calls, anything like that. They go, she, she herself is a translator, an Arabic translator, uh, playing the Catherine Gunn, who in real life did in fact leak a secret memo that was passed around internally about the CIA basically going, here's the deal, guys. I mean, as literally with approval of George Bush, we want you to find dirt on these people uh, to, that are as a uh, part of NATO in order to get them to all be on the same page about us invading Iraq. <laughs> and obviously she, which is not cool or legal, at all. Yeah. And she was like, uh, and weighing between her own sense of patriotism for her country, loyalty to her job, her fear, and knowing that she's probably going to get caught if she leaks this thing, but is it important to do? Is it the right thing to do? Which obviously she did, in fact, do. And, you know, you watch this play out in a way that's not wildly unpredictable or anything. No, but it works. But it works. Uh, Matt Smith playing the, the, uh, um, a journalist that's sort of track, tracking down the story and trying to figure out what happened. Matthew Good is in here as well, uh, who I like quite a bit, as well as Reese Ephens, Ralph Fiennes. I mean, it's one of those films. It's got this really solid cast. It's quite well made. It's a part. It's a story I knew nothing about about this part. I mean, there's yeah. certainly lots of like whoa, corrupt bad shit that happened during this period in terms of uh, the, the the Western world governments co mm -hmm. collaborating to do shit that wasn't on the the uh on the level but this was one aspect i had never heard of and yeah i found it really interesting is it wildly engaging and like one of the must-see movies of the year no it is not but it it's is a rock it's a rock solid political thriller it's exactly yeah. you know it's it is a whistleblower movie and we've seen these whistleblower movies and there's certain expectations of like Okay, they have to weigh how much their life is disrupted, going to be disrupted by this thing, and then they find people that they didn't expect to be there uh, on their side or suddenly on their side, and you know, and certain other people that they thought would have their back are now out to get them, and it's you know, it, it hits all those standard beats, uh, but it works. It works for what it is, I think, because it is, you know, it does have a cast of solid actors. It is well made. Um, it does tell a story that wasn't as heavily uh, publicized here as some other, you know, stories relating to uh, the Iraq invasion. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's rock solid. It's not. Uh, yeah, it's it ain't it ain't reinventing the wheel, but no. it's rock solid. But yeah, if you like political thrillers, it's a solid one that's well worth your time. I think you'll be at the end like, wow, that was really enjoyable and super informative about stuff I did not know much about. And I yeah. assume that probably, I mean, this was a much bigger news story in England. Didn't really translate here, <laughs> you know. Like it, nobody, I guess nobody gave a shit here. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's got a great cast. But they're only even now, even with, like I said, like a barely any theatrical release. They offered VOD for this thing. I think it, like I think there was a press screening, but they had done it in the morning, which nine times out of ten means they don't care about it that much. And this is only DVD. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, it's a I'd, shame. I'd never heard of it, and to be completely honest, it was more considering I'd never heard of it, it was, it was more quote unquote Hollywood than I expected. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, as a compliment, I, it sure. felt like something that would play theatrically, you know, felt like, you know, something. Yeah. It, it, it's at home with other movies of its, of its ilk. Indeed. Uh, so next up, moving on to another, uh, release of an, a much older film, the, the bells of St. Mary's. This is a movie I don't, I've heard of, the one of those movies like, yeah, isn't that a Christmas movie or something? Or like one of those movies I always hear about and I'm like, I'm probably never. I mean, it's fucking Bing Crosby movie and Ingmar, Ingrid Bergman about a priest and a nun. Uh, this doesn't sound like it's and a sequel. And in fact, a sequel, which is weird. Um, apparently, Crosby in the 1944 film Going My Way, which he won the Academy Award for Best Actor, played that role. This is a sequel. It, at the time, was considered not as good, but it's the one that's remembered largely because it is, in fact, kind of a cr- Christmas film. Yeah. And, and I apparently, even today, people are like, no, 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 the other film's better, but people kind of forgotten about it just because it's not a Christmas film. And Christmas films have this way of, like, making the rounds again more often. Yeah. I mean, you Did, tell the story of this one. Oh, there's uh, there's an, an old beat up church uh in a parochial school um that has seen better days and next to it is a fancy tract of land where someone is building a an all new nice beautiful complex and a priest is transferred here to this shabby parochial school um where his he makes it his mission to talk the guy that's that owns the tract of land where they're building a nice new building he makes it his mission to uh, commandeer that tract of land for God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, there's also um, uh, which he's totally gaslighting the guy yeah. weirdly the whole time. Like, oh no, I get what you're saying. You're saying you want to do this for God, guys. But I, I, but and just like literally, kind of browbeating him with God until he thinks it was his idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, hey, um. I wasn't crazy about this. I wasn't either. I mean, I, I, I'm not the world's biggest Bing Crosby guy. He's fine. I can take him or leave him, yeah. right? But, I, you know, Ingrid Bergman, Jesus, Casablanca is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. Like, I've watched it so many times. I think she's fantastic. I've seen her in so many movies. This is a movie this that is... coasts on Bing Crosby being... Bing it, it, Char- On being him. Yeah. Yeah, he basically is going... He's going through this movie sort of playing himself scene to scene. And it's like, he's... And that's it. And it's sort of like you, it's kind of um, episodic. Mm-hmm. Um, it has some like uh, fundamentally, uh, <laughs> there's stuff about it I found deeply troubling and questionable. And yes. I, it's not even a matter of being like 20th century woke. It's just a matter of like, 
but the Bible doesn't say just fight better. <laughs> like, right. there's certain things that are in it that I found like sort of lessons and and wisdom that was conveyed as like these pearls and nuggets that I just fundamentally disagreed with, which uh-huh. probably also hurt my yeah. um my viewing of it. And Bergman, who's like such a big actress here, is really. I mean, at first, like, oh, she's going to be a big part of this, and the no. moment she comes in, it's just. Bing Crosby stepping all over her, yeah. all over all her lines, over her. Her character is almost an afterthought. It's like, well, he's got to have someone to read his lines to in the room. Yeah, is what it feels like she's there for because she doesn't really have much of an arc herself. It's also too episodic to be as long as it is because it clocks in over two hours, and for it to be just sort of these little, a lot of it is just sort of like little day in the life parochial school moments. Uh, yeah. That sort the, of play out because there's not a big. It's it's a bunch of side quests. I think I think <laughs> establishing up front, like so quickly that I'm going to make it my mission for us to get that other land, and you know you know as a movie watcher that it's not going to end with them being like nope, <laughs> yeah nope we're knocking down the school and everybody has to go to the other one like of you course. know that's not the case it's so, a Christmas movie <laughs> right so it, with it opening with that. And then sort of having two long hours with which to get to that place. I almost feel like withholding that or introducing that later or some sort of, there's just some sort of question as to whether or not it can happen Mm -hmm. would have helped tremendously. But it's almost. But as it is, there's zero tension. It's like weirdly conflict free. Yeah. Uh, and again, you just have like even even the little mini stories. Like there's one of the, like the girl that's brought into the convent yeah. that's not sure she even really wants to be there at first, and you figure, oh, this is going to play into a whole. No, not really. Just Everything's just thing, kind yeah. of fine. It's all right. It's all fine. I'd seen part of this movie before. I think somebody just shared it on social media one year. But I'd seen the Christmas pageant with the uh, with the for the kindergartners mm-hmm. the Christmas pageant I'd seen before, which was cute. Uh, there's a lot of it that's kind of cute. Yeah, but it's not a great movie. No, it's even though nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best well, Picture, Best Director, know, Best Actor, Norbit was actress. also nominated for an Academy that, that, Award. I'm not saying very that, fair. I just realized I may have sounded like I compared Bells of St. Mary's to it's Norbit, Norbit. <laughs> but no, but, but you're right. Sometimes I mean, Cats might end up with a nomination we'll this year. It'll be this yeah. year's Norbit. Yeah. I haven't talked to you yet about Cats. We no, probably should discuss it. that at some point. Oh, you haven't? I have not seen. So it. your sanity is still intact. I'm surprised at how big it's bombing. It's weird to live in a social media, <laughs> but it's weird to live in a social media bubble where everyone I know is talking about cats and seeing cats and seeing it multiple times. And I went and looked at the box office because I thought, yeah. oh, Christmas probably like no, but it's, it's made like fifteen million out of a ninety it million budget. Tanked, yeah, it tanked. I I would not have been able to guess that yeah. just based on the conversation. It's awful. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so this is Olive Films who does about once every six months they take choose a film to be like we're going to give this one the our, our com- competing with Criterion type treatment yeah. and this is the one they picked this time for better or for worse it's a brand new 4K restoration of the film with audio commentary by a Bing Crosby biographer Gary Giddens there is a bunch of little smaller features, faith in film, human nature, before sequelitis with the professor talking about the film in the context of Hollywood protection, uh, production history and the sort of lack of sequels at some point during this period. Uh, there's the Screen Guild Theater radio adaptation starring both the original stars as well. There's an essay by cultural critic Abby Bender 
I mean, like I said, if you like this movie, this is as I guarantee this is as good a release that will ever come out of this film. Yeah. <laughs> Until we get the Superman like crystal thing, you know, Fortress of Solitude crystal <laughs> watcher. Uh, but even then, this will be late in the run of the crystal thing machine until they come out with whatever's next, brain implants or whatever. Uh, we're next up. We're going to go with one you did not actually get to see. Damn you! Uh, blinded by the light. Uh, this is a. I watched. I was just blinded that, by all that light. I see what you did yeah. there. This is a adaptation of the a book by journalist San uh, Sarfraz Manzor. And his story as a young man growing up in a kind of a, a shitty part of England, Luton, in 1987, very Thatcherite, very conservative Britain, very racist area where people were like, he himself uh, was a um, Pakistani. They were Pakistani immigrants. Uh, he's was born in America, but like they are not American in England. His family were the immigrants. Uh, he's there with his sisters in Luton. Um, there's a lot of pressure, cultural pressure to do certain things and to act a certain way. But he's one of those guys, he just doesn't feel like he fits in anywhere until this one of the only other uh, Pakistani people that that he has any contact with. He meets this guy who's, I, I guess he's a Sikh because he has the, the head turban things. Mm-hmm. I think that's a Sikh thing. I'm not really 100% sure. I'm sorry. I'm culture. I don't want to be culturally insensitive on any level, but I think that's what that is. But basically he's like, dude, have you heard the boss? And starts giving him Bruce Springsteen tapes. And you're like, okay. And he's like, whoa, I dig this shit out of this guy. Like, this guy might as well be talking about me. Like, growing up, feeling like you don't fit in in this town with that like super poor and everybody's fighting for for like like to try and keep their jobs and there's unionization and fight against unionization and you know all the stuff that Springsteen talks about he's like yeah this is my struggle and the film the moment it decides that it's going to go Bruce Springsteen this film clamps its mouth over Bruce Springsteen's cock and does not let go until the final scene of the film and I mean really nonstop <laughs> like see, it's just like the words to the songs are flying across the screen back and forth there's points that like sort of heightened reality where like everybody starts singing together Bruce, and dancing Bruce to Bruce Springsteen songs and which is all to say I mean it's perfectly charming in its way there's nothing wildly original about this story you've seen this movie just where it was somebody else other than the boss or a different style of music you know like if you want to see something I always say Sing Street is kind of like one of the all time great movies of this type of film and much better than Blinded by the Light which is still not bad (laughs) a lot of people actually have this maybe not a lot but some people do have this on their best of the year list uh I don't get that, but everything in here is, like I said, acceptable, kind of charming. Haley Atwell, uh, who I adore, is playing his school teacher. Uh, it's Vivek. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Kalra is the actor uh, playing the role, who is so very, very good in this, and I suspect we will see more in the future. And uh, he, he, I don't know what else to say about this. It's like I said, it's charming, but it also is that point of like slavish Bruce Springsteen worship them like yeah relax I like Bruce Springsteen too but let's not get fucking carried did away did they just did Warners just sign like a new contract with Springsteen That's for what us it, to get two big uh, like love letters to Springsteen yeah cause they year? just did that uh, that that sort of live there's concert there's that documentary, documentary thing that everybody's going and the, crazy also saying apparently too. his new album is the best thing he's done in like 15 years or something I like but, the, the tagline on the front of this is hilarious to me once he heard the music of Bruce Springsteen, 
nothing could stop him. Uh, that's pretty accurate to what actually this, the plot of this film is. Like I said, I like this. I'm never going to fucking watch it again, <laughs> but I liked it. I mean, I suppose if you really like Bruce Springsteen, you're probably going to have a different effect than I did. I mean, for me, it's like when I listen to Thunder Road, it gives me the chills. I'm like, that song is a truly kick-ass, one of the greatest rock and roll songs ever written. Everything else, I'm like, hey, my mileage varies on Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) But Blinded by the Light, the title... I associate with a completely different... Who did a cover of a Bruce Springsteen song. Okay. Yeah, because that was originally by Bruce Springsteen. The the one that we know... Blinded, Blinded by the, the light. light is a cover. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that was a cover. Man, it's so... My wife does this to me all the time where I'll be like, I love that song. It's like, man, that, that one of that band's best songs. It's like, yeah, but they didn't write it. I was like, yes, they did. And she'll be like, see? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, so I'm like, yeah, it was Dolly Parton or some but weird still, person it's you'd weird. never think. Still, it's weird to, to have the movie titled with something that... Uh, I guess they couldn't call it like Dancer in the Dark, though, because that's their song. Yeah, yeah, that's very different. <laughs> what else? Um, <laughs> Born in the USA, that's already a movie. Yeah, and um, also would not be appropriate to the the, the plot here yes. as well. All right. Well, um, maybe they did pick a fine title. A, a Hungry Heart? I don't know. That's that not a bad worked. one. All that right, might have worked. There we go. Uh, like I said, not like I, I deeply respect Springsteen. I like almost everything I've heard by him. It's only maybe one song I absolutely love. But I don't have that connection a lot of people do have to Bruce Springsteen. Those people might find a lot more emotionally to connect with here than I did. Because the beats are obvious and we've seen them before. And often not as well done as they have been in other films. But, again, people of color, growing up in England, dealing with racism and a lot of woke type concepts that make it feel slightly more updated than maybe in a lot of the other films of its type. Uh, What was the one? Oh, Bend It Like Beckham is one that I, I think people were very much throwing comparisons here too and which are completely fair but uh, like i said i uh, i i hope you like it <laughs> give it a shot i guess there's a few extra features here but nothing very much at all 23 minutes of bonus material there's a memoir to movie looking at the fact that this was like this guy's actual memoir but they changed a lot to make it more dramatic like there's a a love interest he's like yeah there was i was not having sex with anyone at that point in my life. <laughs> there was nothing like that happening uh the author of the memoir and the most crazy thing talks about his story his love of springsteen how literally him got he got to be friends with springsteen like he like ended up becoming friends with the dude and like has, he's like i've never missed a tour i still go see him every time they bring me backstage and like me and springsteen hang out I'm like gotta kind of feel good for a guy's like his favorite musician and he gets to be buddies with them You're yeah like, don't we all want that on some level i mean unless you know your favorite musician is a dick which is true for many of us <laughs> as well uh there's 10 minutes of deleted and extended scenes but like i said this is hardly a must see but uh, you know it's a good it's a good charming film to watch if you're like with your family or whatever or, like somebody who's like i don't want anything super serious i just want something that's gonna make me feel good that's well done there you go Blinded by the Light. Our last film is a film that is not appropriate for all families to watch together, unless your family is a lot like my my group of friends, and that's ready or not. Uh-oh. 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 You do not feel the same way uh-oh. I do about this uh-oh. movie? I would, I, we've talked about this before. It's rare that you and I Disagree on are at odds. But uh, Oh, wow. So this was go. not for here, you, here huh? Here we go. This was not for you? No. Oh, I'm so sad to hear that. No, it was um, not. I I found this uh, a nice little companion piece this year to watch alongside Knives Out, which is decidedly the better of the two films. Yeah. But they both have a sort of feel of like big, weird family, crazy, huge house, elements of Clue, 
and movie and murder by death that are in there, but both doing completely their own thing. Uh, we've talked about this highly suspect reviews. Samara Weaving plays a newlywed. who has been brought into this uh, family, uh, spouse's family, as part of a wedding night ritual. Uh, they apparently got their fortune from board games, uh, and now they're like the Parker Brothers or, or what have you. And they do this thing where she has to pull a card, and it says hide or seek. And she's like, oh, are we actually going to do this? And the family's like, fuck. I'm like, what? And it's like, well, okay, apparently out of the list of games that can be picked, most of which are innocuous, the only one that's not is hide or seek, which means everyone has to try and hunt and kill her before the end of the night. And if they don't succeed, something unnameable and horrible happens. And there's overlays of hints that that something might be connected to the fact supernaturally of why their family is so successful in a sort of like Faustian bargain sort of way. But it's not really clear till the very end whether or not this is in fact accurate information. Uh, I quite enjoyed the way that played out myself. I was laughing out loud in the theater. This, I think it's a really, another really solid performance by Samara Weaving, who's turning into one of the most interesting young actresses today. She actually had a really cool film at Fantastic Fest this year as well, along with uh, playing the, a super badass metal-toothed assassin chasing Elijah Wood. <laughs> oh, is that Daddy? Uh... No, it's no? not Come to Daddy. I'm blanking on the name of it right oh, now, but okay. it's a different one. Yeah, I don't know this movie. Um I found this movie charming and funny, far from perfect, but really enjoyed it. But I want to hear why John does not agree with me. It was not because of the ending. And somebody actually asked me specifically if the ending is what turned me off. I actually liked how lunatic it was at the ending. It was actually that lack of lunacy through the whole thing that kind of bothered me. I felt like most of the conversations in the movie were the same information repeated over and over and over to the detriment of situations in which she could have been in where I wondered how she would get out of that. There's basically one sort of larger, how are you going to get out of this action sequence involving her, uh, like getting a car and all that stuff. I thought some of it is based on, some of it is based on preconceived expectations, but some of it is based on just strictly what's in the movie. So in a movie like this, my expectation is going to be that you're going to place that character in situations where I'm going to continually wonder how she's going to get out of this. Instead, ready or not is more often than not scenes of characters explaining the lore of the movie over and over and over again. And I was like, I get it. Like, yes, the dad made a deal. Yes, we don't know whether or not it's going to come true. Yes, we know that you only have till dawn or everything goes to shit. Like, please stop repeating it <laughs> ad nauseum. Yeah. Like, I got very, very tired of of that of that explaining. Certainly imbalanced with the what I, my desire to watch, which was her. Like, her using her wits to get out of stuff. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see, you know, kind of from go, she hides in a dumbwaiter, and then she's led into, like, this underground passage. And I thought a lot of... I thought more of the movie would be her sneaking around the house and getting out of situations by the skin of her teeth. There's not a lot of that there. There's... Everything is sort of, like, lip service towards this button on the end, this sort of, like lunacy in the finale mm -hmm. and everything is sort of like I think they I think the filmmakers might have been so uh, amused by that and I was too mm -hmm. I like that finale but I think that distracted them to the point that just in the writing process that became everything that they sort of like built towards or talked about or gave lip service to and it's sort of like 
it's fine. Like we we get it. You only you only need to have those characters. I mean, you really you only need to have the characters have the conversation once, mm-hmm. twice to reinforce maybe. But every time they would stop in a room or pause or have a discussion amongst themselves, it was the same info every time. Hmm. I ended up not being crazy about Ready or Not. Okay, I think it's got. I think it's a nice looking movie. And I and again I I kind of like I did like the end I liked that it that it was nuts the ending is very well the the creators who are are now for some reason just going by Matt their real names uh, Matt Bettinelli Olpin and Tyler Gillette previously have been known by their uh, collaborative efforts under the name Radio Silence yeah and it definitely when I found out, I was like oh this is totally a Radio Silence film yeah. <laughs> like of the type of stuff that they've done before I think she's good. I think a lot of it is, um, and I think the cast is good. I just don't think they're given, I don't think that they're given the best material to work with. Hmm. Um, and and ultimately, I ended up being pretty disappointed by Ready or Not. Oh, I'm sorry. Very sad to hear that. It's okay. For me, I found this a lot there should, of fun. There should be like a tally board for times that we completely disagree. I mean, so it I think it's so like three. Irregularly. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like we always have like sort of, I liked it. I liked it more. I liked it. I liked it less. This right. is one where it's like, eh, I really, I, I wish I could say that I really liked this, but. I, I was pretty charmed by it. I definitely agree in the sense that. Like, I think they overplay the whole, Jesus Christ, we've got to, this is, we have to do this. But I liked the goofiness of the families. Like, most of them have never done this before either. So mm. they're not, like, trained killers or anything. They're kind of incompetent. And I, I love the, there's a lot of shot at shout-outs and nods to other films like Clue, hidden throughout the movie as well. Yeah. Um, there's lots of little Easter eggs as well. Uh, and I thought Samara Weaving was wonderful here. I always, I keep kept thinking, even as I was watching it, how much better it would have been if they had cast a little wider, because a lot of the people are, you know, while not unknowns, certainly not people as iconic as you'd expect to be in these roles, who I felt might have been able to, like, if you had filled it up with, like, modern comedians that are, like, really good at, like, knowing how to, like, come up with, like, ticks for their character right. to have to make them more entertaining it would have expanded what this movie was capable of and i think it and could i may have been, been more interested then in seeing the the mini conversations that they were having mm. uh so there's 42 minute let the games begin the making of ready or not which is a multi-part featurette and i had fun watching it it's it's okay it's nothing essential but it's, it's certainly not just your bland run-of-the-mill epk there's a four minute gag reel that's pretty fun to watch there's an audio commentary by the directors radio silence and samara weaving there's a gallery of onset photographer and something called lee domas family games which is basically the idea of all the games the old games the family has made it's like the covers of the board games and then the red band trailer but uh, so the real question for the week is and i'm gonna let you pick what is our pick of the week and and this is uh you know john golson's opinion so take that with a grain of salt because he didn't like ready or not my pick of the week this week <laughs> i'm gonna give it to the fair because if i went out of my oh, way wow. okay if i went out of my way to message the 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 creators behind the movie you feel like i feel like it's and i i'm giving it my pick for amplification purposes fair i'm giving it my pick because i've seen a few movies this year that were diy no budget affairs and there have been a couple that were rock solid this one um the headhunter which we didn't we haven't reviewed on digital noise but was another one where it's people making the most with what they have Mm -hmm. and so i'm going to give my pick to the fair I think that uh, I think it's worth finding and seeking out. 
It may not be the... It, I, I, well, I can guarantee you, it's not the best movie that we talked about today, but it's the one that deserves the biggest signal boost. That's totally fair, and I agree with you there. Uh, that's our last digital noise of 2019. Thanks for, for listening to our shows. More, of course, on the way. I've already got uh, sent Aaron home with part of a stack. It's one of those, for some reason, you would think that like at this time of year, the home releases would just be like coming out fast and furious, but they never are. It slows down the home releases yeah, in they December. they got to have everything out before Christmas so people can buy No, but that's presents. what I'm saying is they don't. Weirdly, like like there's not a huge push in December for home release stuff. And I'm always like, you'd feel like more stuff would be coming out, but it doesn't. And I think maybe part of that is they don't want to compete against all the other stuff people are getting, uh, you know. And maybe that's also slowed down in this age of streaming, too. Maybe so. I don't know. I know I got a Blu-ray for Christmas. I got the 4K of Into the Spider-Verse, and I was very happy to get it. I bought myself a 4K of Casino. Okay, well, there you go. Was that Christmas money, though? And it was with Christmas money. Okay, so that counts as a present. Sure. 